Before we start this week, a note about next week. We will not have a podcast the week of July 4th. We're taking the week off. We hope you have a great holiday week. We'll be back the following Monday. But we are here for all of this week. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Courtney Astolfi. Laura Johnston will be back tomorrow. Let's get going with a column, something we don't normally do on this podcast. Brent Larkin, our columnist and former editorial board chief, wrote some very strong words over the weekend about Ohio government, saying that in his long career, he's never seen the likes of what is happening now. Lisa, what is he criticizing? He's criticizing the the lack of you know separation, I think, between all the arms of the uh, of our government. So you know, basically, he said that you know the budget cuts that the Senate is calling for in childcare, education programs for needy kids, you know, it just shows that they care more about arming Ohio with guns that kill kids in schools rather than investing in proven programs that have success. So he he said there are three things about today's leaders in. Ohio. He says, first, they're all in on the scam. There's no more separation of powers between branches. He said state issue one was concocted by Secretary of State Frank LaRose, embraced by Governor DeWine and the Republicans, and rubber stamped by an Ohio Supreme Court that doesn't even pretend to care about the law. And he said that the majority, the GOP majority on the Supreme Court could be replaced with four trained seals and nobody would notice the difference. (laughs) And then he said, the second point, he said they're willing to lie with impunity. And we're certainly seeing that around state issue one, their claims of preventing outside influence while accepting money from an Illinois businessman to support state issue one. And he says, they'll keep doing it. Don't care what the voters think, even if issue one fails, which he's Brent Larkin feels is likely, and we hope he's right. He says they will continue to collude and there will be another attempt to harm Ohio in the future, even if state issue one doesn't pass. Yeah, I really like this column. It it we've talked about these themes for months now on this podcast, especially with regard to issue 1. But Brent brings decades and decades of government accountability. And when he says this has never happened before and we are cascading into the toilet, people should pay attention. I this is an unprecedented moment. Senate President Matt Huffman is colluding with all the Republicans to deprive Ohio of representative government. They're creating a dictatorship with the way they've gerrymandered, and the Supreme Court isn't on it. I mean, there's no doubt about it. They are, they are not basing things on the rule of law. They're basing things on party. Very, very powerful stuff. I uh, posed a question on subtext this morning. I'm going to be interested to see what it says. Because the legislature is so gerrymandered, as Brent points out, the Senate president and the House speaker are the most powerful positions in Ohio right now, Mm -hmm. way more powerful than the governor. He's like nothing. So they're all both elected from tiny little districts by a tiny number of Ohioans and then chosen by their colleagues. If they're going to have the power, shouldn't we change the Constitution so that we all elect them and make it a statewide vote? I'll be interested to see what our readers say to that, because this can't continue. We are being lorded over 
by two guys who come from tiny little districts elected by a minuscule number of Ohioans and they're running the table. Yeah, it, it's 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 pretty sad. And this shows what a veto-proof supermajority can do to a state. I mean, even if Governor DeWine's heart is in the right place, and I think we think that it is in certain things, I think he just gives up and says, oh, I'm going to pass this law because it'll be vetoed anyway. I know. I know. It's a great column. Uh, I get a lot of resistance from right-minded readers about Brent Larkin. They criticize all the time and say, why do you run him? And the reason we run him is he does bring decades of experience to this. He has a clear view of history and of the present. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How much prison time do federal prosecutors seek for the very corrupt Larry Householder on Thursday? And Courtney, what is their reasoning? Yeah, federal prosecutors are going hard in their recommended sentence for Larry Householder. They're asking a federal judge to sentence him to 16 to 20 years in prison. And they want that, you know, that amount of time that would hit the the legal maximum here. They they talked in their filing requesting this sentence about householders' abuse of the public trust. They likened him to a, quote, quintessential mob boss. And they accused him of dishonesty at trial. And and all of these things were feeding into their requested sentence. And, you know, as we know, in March, a jury found Householder guilty of engaging in a racketeering conspiracy. He'd been accused of taking millions in bribes for himself while shepherding through legislation that was worth a billion dollars to First Energy. And prosecutors said that Householder's guideline range, like what's dictated by federal sentencing guidelines, it recommends life imprisonment here. Well, I could not agree more. I think that he represents the very worst of government. We just talked about Brent Larkin's column. Larry Householder had that power go to his head, didn't think he had an answer to the people, thought he could enrich himself and be bought and paid for by First Energy. They do need to make an example of him, and everybody in Columbus should be watching. I can't wait till this is over because you've got to think this is the hurdle to get over before the rest of the indictments come. The people at First Energy that paid for this whole debacle are still walking around free. They are. And, and, and federal prosecutors really are hammering home what you're saying here. They want to show the public that the rule of law applies to all, including prominent politicians like Householder. They said there were no mitigating factors here that ought to temper the sentence here. And, and obviously Householder obviously doesn't want this. And in his own motions, he's requesting a much lighter sentence of 12 to 18 months. His lawyers are arguing that this whole case has done irreparable harm to his reputation. And there's no really risk of sentencing him for a shorter amount of time because nothing will be accomplished. They say he's already been humiliated and disgraced and that's going to keep him away from being able to do this kind of conduct in the future anyways. Yeah, but that's not, it's also about the penalty. He raped and pillaged the state. He needs to pay the penalty. What amazed me is Brent Hillier, a state legislator, wrote a letter in his defense pretty much saying that this is a media creation, that his scandal is a media creation, <laughs> that he's known him and he's a nice family man and he needs leniency. This guy is a, an elected state legislator saying about the most corrupt official in the history of the state. Nice guy, go lenient. Amazing to me that he would go on the record and say something like that. You are listening to Today in Ohio. 
Ohio has so many moving parts in the battle over abortion that it can be hard to discern where things stand now and where they are headed. On the anniversary, the first year anniversary of the Dobbs decision, reporter Laura Hancock brought some order to it all. Layla, what does her story say? Yeah, as things stand right now, abortion is generally legal in Ohio until 22 weeks of pregnancy. In in 2019, the legislator passed and, and Governor DeWine signed the heartbeat bill that banned abortions at around six weeks when a fetal heart tone could be detected. But pretty quickly, a federal judge determined that it conflicted with the U.S. Supreme Court precedent in Roe. After the Dobbs decision last year overturned Roe, that same judge dissolved his order and the heartbeat law went into effect. So then abortions were banned for about 11 weeks until back in October, a Cincinnati judge issued a preliminary injunction that prohibits the state from enforcing it. So while that six-week ban is on hold, Ohio has reverted to prior law legalizing abortion until 22 weeks. So that's what is uh, on the book. That's what we're abiding by right now. That preliminary injunction is in place for the remainder of a trial that will weigh the constitutionality of the heartbeat law. But further delaying that case is the fact that Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost, who's a Republican opposed to abortion, he's appealing the preliminary injunction of the Ohio Supreme Court. So there will be legal arguments scheduled before the Supreme Court on that appeal. We might be seeing those arguments around the same time that voters will decide issue one in August, coincidentally. If, if the Ohio constitutional amendment passes in November, it would permit abortion until the point of fetal viability. That would essentially render the heartbeat law unconstitutional at that point. Abortion rights activists have until July 5th to collect 413,000 signatures from registered voters across the state to get that amendment on the ballot in November. And and we know it's so easy to do that. You know, we have to change the Constitution to make it more challenging. It's really easy to collect 400,000 signatures, as we all know. Yeah, too easy. Too easy, right? Yeah, it's <laughs> Let's a, make it harder. It, it was a good, Laura's story was good to kind of level set. Here's where we are. Here's where we're going. It, um, it It's good to get that on there because I think right. there are, is some general levels of confusion. I agree, yeah. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Well, let's talk about issue one and as it pertains to abortion. it The issue language makes no mention of abortion, but reporter Andrew Tobias says issue one is ground zero right now in the fight over abortion. Lisa, how is that so? Well, it seems that if state issue one passes, it could provide a roadmap for other states that are seeking to restrict abortion amendments, even though this isn't about abortion. It could be a viable strategy to stop ballot issues, not just abortion that, that uh, you know, they don't like. So Ohio Right to Life President Mike Gondadakis says everybody is watching this race. He thinks Ohio is ground zero for how these battles will go in other states. And he's been traveling to promote, you know, state issue one to Republicans, conservatives, and religious groups. And you know he's talking about abortion. He's for right to life. But both sides, both the for and against sides, have a dual messaging. One is for the general electorate. The other is focused on voters who are interested in abortion rights, either pro or con. And this is starting to attract national media attention. We've seen stories in the New York Times, Fox News, Fox News, The New Yorker Magazine, and CBS News. And then TV ads should begin in August. So this will be interesting to see what tack these these 
ads take. So um, Wake Forest University professor John Dynan says that the ba- ballot access issues have predated the Dobbs decision, but ever since you know Roe v. Wade was overturned, it has generated interest in state constitutional amendment rules. Ohio, it could be one of similar votes. It could be held in some in coming years if they see that this works, and we hope it doesn't. You know, other people will say, hey, this is kind of a way we can stop things like abortion rights. And I'm surprised they're waiting till August for the TV commercials because people will be early voting now. And it makes me wonder whether they didn't raise all that money. They thought they thought a whole bunch of business types would contribute to it. But business types have to be careful if they make half their their customers angry uh, because they're taking a political stand. Funding issue one is funding Mm anti-democracy. And anybody who puts money into that and is outed for it is going to pay a serious, serious price. I, I do. Th- when it says it's ground zero for the abortion battle, it's also ground zero for the sleaziest tactics we've pretty much ever seen in a campaign. They're lying. They're, they're just outright lying to voters about protecting the Constitution from outside interest when it is outside interests that are trying to get this to happen. Uh, and if that succeeds... That's a that's a terrible day for Ohio and for the United States. Well, and it just continues this pattern, you know, of our state leaders just ignoring the law and walking away from it, thinking, oh, no, nobody will care. And nobody, I mean, nobody's been able to stop them. So we need to stop them at the ballot box. Yeah, that, 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 the early voting starts soon. So hopefully people will start to uh, get their ballots and get them back in. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Was Cleveland's director of economic development fired because she would not bow to the wishes of developers seeking city subsidies? Courtney, you wrote a great story putting this into perspective. What did you find? Yeah, Tessa Jackson, Cleveland's economic development director, was fired by Mayor Justin Bibb a bit over a week ago now. And Bibb is refusing to say why he booted her. He's keeping that secret. We can't get answers to our questions in that category. But At the same time, we heard from one of the largest development players in Cleveland, Doug Price of K&D Group, and he told us that he and other developers for the past few months had been lobbying Jackson's bosses at City Hall, just, just airing complaints and complaining about her work, not happy with her work, and and now fast forward, and on June 15th, she was fired. So we don't have a definitive answer from City Hall there, but... We don't know that it wasn't this issue, especially if developers were actively levying complaints against Jackson's work. Now, this all seems, without that clarity, we'll have to wait for answers for City Hall, right? But what we do know is that Tessa Jackson, in the short time she was Bibb's economic development head, was raising all kinds of issues publicly with how the city had been incentivizing development over the last 15 years. And Jackson told us in this big hearing back in February before city council, she was working to fix these, what sounds like very troubling practices This and how the city doles out taxpayer incentives. On the other side of the aisle, we have Doug Price telling us how Tessa Jackson did not feel like pro-development. It did not feel like the work she was doing was pro-development, Price said. So you've got this push and pull. We have Jackson's public statements where she was trying to push, it seemed, for 
equity and and better practices and how the city sends this money out the door and and now she's gone. Well, and there's more going on here too cuz you had written a story a while back about a new ordinance passed in Cleveland that will have minority business participation standards that require the clawback of money if the developers don't do what they're supposed to, which has caused panic among developers because they're having a harder time getting getting loans for their business. So you have that going on. I mean, GCP actually appeared before a council committee and said, please don't do this, which was kind of dumb. Uh, they they might have been able to work some kind of deal in the background. But once you go and sit before council and say, don't do this, don't create your minority business program, you're putting council into a spot where they pretty much have to follow through. And you wonder whether the firing of, of Tessa Jackson is the olive branch that they're giving to developers, but it's not going down well. Norm Edwards, who represents black contractors, has already seized upon it. He quoted your story in a letter he sent saying, Mayor Bibb, don't let us down. This is a very, we'll have to see how this situation develops, right? Mayor Bibb wants to do a lot of big revitalization of the city. He's got designs on reinvigorating the southeast side. He wants to do a bunch of projects downtown. You know that he has to work with developers to do this kind of thing. But at the same time, the mayor talks about equity. He says he hired Tessa Jackson to really institute, you know, neighborhood revitalization. And it it sure seems like she was doing that. So if we do have competing goals from the mayor's office, where does he stand in his approach to development? We're going to have to see how that unfolds. In the meantime, I think it, it was really interesting to compare two different things that I did cover in my story. A quote from Tessa Jackson earlier this year, she was talking about how there was essentially exclusivity in the world of who has access to city loans and development incentives. She said it almost was like you had to know someone who had a flashlight who could take you in this dark room of development and and show you how to navigate the process to get the city money. On the other hand, and Doug Price gave me this quote that I thought he was he was talking about how he wanted someone like Mayor Frank Jackson's former economic development director. And he, he described someone like that in this way. He was just a very can-do guy. Maybe you couldn't get everything you needed, but he worked his best to figure out how to get around obstacles and how to navigate the city. Hmm. So that exclusivity question, I just, that's sticking in my head. Well, the other thing in your story that is outrageous is that a number of these developers have not satisfied Mm -hmm. the terms of their contract for their subsidies and the city isn't going after Mm -hmm. the money. That's ridiculous. They signed a contract to do certain things. If they fail, they owe the money back and we're going to have to dig into that. That I'm I'm surprised at that. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. It, you know, if you don't satisfy terms of the contract, then you've broken the contract. Then you got to pay it back. And that's what Tessa Jackson was saying. We need to get this money back on the books. It's owed to the people of Cleveland. Yeah, I that, that one is a no-brainer. And so we'll have to figure out who all these developers are who failed to live up to their promises. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Reporter Lucas Duprile is working on our series about civil discourse, and his latest story traces the roots of the anger that has taken hold of all of our political conversations. Layla, when did it start? Lucas cited media and other political historians who trace the roots of 
our incivility to the beginning of Rush Limbaugh's popularity as, as a right-wing radio talk show host. His, his show became nationally syndicated in 1988, and we all know how outrageous Limbaugh could be. I mean, Limbaugh pushed the unfounded theory that Barack Obama was not born in, in the U.S., and he once did that racist impression of a Chinese president, and, and he popularized the term feminazi, and he, he called a college student testifying before Congress a slut and prostitute for her testimony supporting publicly funded contraception. Basically, I mean, he said things that no one should say on air, or at all for that matter, and it encouraged his fans to be as brazenly hateful and divisive as, as he was. And it strengthened the partisan identities of, of average Americans and created this us versus them narrative that became the underpinning of partisan media to this day, basically. But if you ask Northeast Ohioans what they believe is the source of, of the discord, as we did in a survey conducted in conjunction with Baldwin Wallace and Brave Angels, Ohio, people point to partisan media, yes, but also both Presidents Donald Trump and Joe Biden as the sources. Roughly 72% of respondents said President Trump was either very or somewhat responsible for the decline of civility in U.S. politics. And for Joe Biden, that number was 66%. More than 87% of respondents said news media were either very or somewhat responsible for the decline of civility. And, uh, you know, respondents were split as to which type of media, social media or partisan news media, were most responsible for the partisan divide. When they were asked which was the largest cause of polarization in America, the most common answer was a lack of agreement between parties. That was 22 percent, followed by news sources from their own side. That was 19 percent. And then by social media, Internet use, 16 percent. And uh, less than 10% of respondents listed one of several other factors like gerrymandering or money in politics, eroding trust in social institutions, and a, a general erosion of trust as primary reasons for all this polarization. But Lucas provided great analysis of all that data. It's a great story to check out. It's interesting that he goes back to Rush Limbaugh. I remember when Rush Limbaugh came to the fore during the Clinton years, uh, and and he did. He was a hate monger. He was gross. But it was just on on the radio back then. He didn't he didn't have that kind of thing appearing on television. A lot of people were still getting their news from broadcast channels and the fairness doctrine applied and kept things even. It that's all changed. Fox News is is ridiculous today. And I guess there are people that feel some of the others are as bad on the left side, although I don't think anything's as bad as Fox News. But social media is the place where people really get to espouse hate. A lot of people right. who might have had hateful thoughts in the past had no microphone and shouldn't. But social media has put them out there. Layla, you said a few weeks back, you think social media has been one of the oh, yeah. worst things I think happened it is, to us. I, I hate social media. I feel like it is the most toxic echo chamber. And it is, you know, Lucas cited some sources who said it's it's just throwing the gasoline on the fire that's been ignited by partisan media. We're in a bad point <laughs> right now. Um, and yeah, Rush Limbaugh, he was the forefather of, of a lot of this. Yeah, he was he was a bad force on, on humanity. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How much is Ohio's craft brewery industry worth to the state economy? And Lisa, we do love our beer in this state. We do. And we, 
all of these good, first of all, we have 420 craft breweries in Ohio. A third of those are right here in Northeast Ohio, 142 of them, and 44 new ones have opened since 2020. So the Ohio Craft Breweries Association had a biennial report, and they said that after a pandemic-related downturn of nearly 9% in 2020, the industry has definitely rebounded. Um, That economic output was $1.27 billion dollars. That's over $40 billion more, $40 million more than it was in 2020. Um, It's responsible for $141 million in state and local taxes, $85 million in federal taxes, and Ohio is number six in craft beer production volume in the, in the nation. And it's responsible for over 12,000 jobs, both directly and indirectly. I give credit to Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was president who signed the bill back in the 70s that allowed home brewing. And all those home brewers have <laughs> gone into craft brewing and it's just, it's grown enormously. And who could have predicted that would be the result when he signed it back when he did? The headline in the plain dealer was cute today. It said that the industry is hopping. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. We noted a couple of weeks ago that Cuyahoga County's most famous corrupt elected official, Jimmy DeMora, was released from prison way early and put on home confinement because of his health. But he still wants total freedom. Courtney, what happened with his latest appeal to get it? Uh, That was a big no for DeMora. The The Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals on Friday shut down DeMora's latest appeal. This is the latest appeal in a long line from DeMora. And and they said this most recent attempt to overturn his 2012 conviction on 30 plus conviction on charges was his attempt was underwhelming, they said. And we got to remember, this is a pro se lawsuit. Demora is doing it himself without attorneys. And and he had based this appeal on what he believed was was weak evidence presented by prosecutors back at his trial. He also pointed to the judge's decision not to allow him to present evidence to the jury showing his ethics disclosure statements. This this involved bribes that had he'd been convicted on. He said, again, that they weren't bribes, that they were gifts that he lawfully disclosed on these ethics statements. But but the judges on the on the Sixth Circuit weren't having it. They said DeMora's provided no reason to think that this was a harmless evidentiary error and 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 this attempt is now over. Yeah, he needs to give it up at this point. He's got home confinement. He's was guilty as can be. He was a crook of by every definition possible. And to keep maintaining this idea that he didn't take bribes is pathetic. So good ruling by the appellate court. It's today in Ohio. All right, Layla, this is the awkward moment where you have to talk about a story I wrote. Why has the public perception of Cleveland's 1986 Balloon Fest, which set the all-time record for the number of balloons released into the sky, changed so dramatically over the past 37 years? Well, all right, Balloon Fest... This is crazy. So it began as this very well-meaning idea from from you know what is now known as the United Way of Greater Cleveland. They thought this would be a great way to bring young people into lives of philanthropy and volunteering for some reason. And the the original plan was to send 2.2 million helium-filled balloons into the sky. And the record had been set the previous December to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Disneyland in California. They released at least a million, maybe more back then. 
So on September 27th, 1986, Cleveland did break that record. They sent 1.5 million balloons up into the air. It was listed very briefly in the Guinness Book of World Records in 88 before they abolished that category, probably because it's a terrible thing to do to the environment. But as you said in your letter from the editor column this weekend, Balloon Fest then went from being this civic celebration and a point of pride 37 years ago to this horrible, embarrassing disaster that it's perceived as today. It seems that over time, media reflections on the event have kind of transmuted the facts and and our collective memory of it has taken on a life of its own. So you took a closer look at Balloon Fest after a documentary filmmaker called for comment on why our 2011 version of the story was fake news. He said we had incorrectly described it as a disaster when it was actually a pretty successful event. So you went back and did this sort of forensic analysis of Balloon Fest and found that our 25th anniversary story in 2011 pretty accurately recounted the headaches of the event, which included the fact that a storm brought down a lot of the balloons that and they rested on the surface of Lake Erie, which Lake Erie, which which hindered the search for two missing boaters who it turned out had drowned. There was a 10-car pileup on the shoreway caused by motorists who were gawking at the balloons, and, and Burke was closed for a period of time. But then it seemed a 2018 documentary called The Doomed Cleveland Balloon Fest started to really bump up the rhetoric about this. They say it caused tragedy by impeding that search on Lake Erie. And at one point they say, Balloon Fest serves as a sobering reminder of the short-sightedness <laughs> of humankind, which is so over the top yeah. and such an overblown statement. But after that, a piece ran in the Atlantic that took that Reddit Rick and ran with it. And it was never viewed with any kind of reasonable perspective again, it seems. But you pointed out some basic facts that undermine those narratives. For example, the two fishermen who had drowned, they had been missing for 14 hours in really cold water before Balloon Fest even began. So was it really Balloon Fest that led to that tragedy? No, it wasn't. And the the 10-car pileup was actually pretty minor when you, you know examine it. And Burke being closed for 30 minutes is not the big event that no, it's, people like it. It should be closed permanently. It should be. I had that line in the column when I took it out. Cause, but, uh, you so, know, yeah. I heard from a whole lot of people who were there in response to this. And it, it was heartbreaking because they remember this as a crowning achievement. They were proud of their city for doing something it never done before. And, and you got to remember, people weren't aware or nearly as aware of the environmental issues of the balloons, which somewhere along the way, I can't find the source of it, but the balloons were supposed to biodegrade in four months. So it's not like they were going to be super plastics. Really? But, but huge groups of children. <laughs> I don't believe that at all. <laughs> huge groups of children from all over the county got together to do this and were proud of it. And the, the public square had more people in it than it had in more than four decades. And I heard from some of them and they remember it proudly and they've been just dismayed by the narrative that has developed since because Cleveland was struggling back in 1986 to have an identity and the United Way got all sorts of people galvanized to do something to put the city on the map. And they did. And these I'm going to write a follow about all the things I heard from people. Uh, it's just amazing to me how the narrative changed 
to the way it has because it's not right. I mean, how would how do you think Cleveland would react today if somebody tried to come in and say you didn't win the 2016 championship and tried to take away that glory day? People would be furious. And that's the way the people that were around back in 86 feel. I wasn't here. I, you know, I think you were about six, so you probably yes, have no memory right. of it. But it, I wish uh, I had a memory of it. I mean, it's it the photos are are amazing and it does look like quite a spectacle and I'm sure that everyone was excited about it when they did it and not thinking at all about the environmental impact. I mean, yes, they, all of those, those uh, tragedies that they tried to associate with balloon fest, that is really a stretch obviously, but I don't know if I believe that the latex balloons biodegraded in four months. I don't know. I, mean, the, the, I definitely have taken Girl Scout troops to the beach where we're picking up microplastics uh, <laughs> for hours. So I, I just, I don't know. It's based on stories at the time. So it wasn't some explainer later, but I, I can't find where I found that reference. Anyway, I'm going to have to write a follow from all the reaction I got. Yeah. That's it for the Monday edition of Today in Ohio. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, everybody who listens. <laughs> <laughs>